On Saturday, March 3, 1888, at the Prince's Theatre in Melbourne, Frederick Federici sang out the last notes to the final solo in the opera Faust to a packed audience. Playing the role of Mephistopheles, Federici was lowered by trapdoor to be returned to the fires of hell, taking Faust with him. But members of the audience noticed that on the way down, he appeared to suddenly slump over. Below stage, the medical advisor was quickly summoned, but attempts to revive him were useless. Federici, the world-famous opera singer, was dead. Welcome to Dead and Buried Podcast, a new series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Kylie Godden. In this episode, we profiled two urban legends of Melbourne celebrities who continued to bask in the limelight, but well beyond the grave. Being historical researchers, we decided to dig into these tales a little further. We were curious about just how these stories morphed into local legend and exactly how much truth lies behind them. Think of this pursuit of fact and fiction as our version of history myth-busting. Lee, did you ever watch the show Fact or Fiction? It was on a couple of years ago. Oh, I did, I think. It was basically like they had four stories which they reenacted, and then you had to guess which ones were true and which ones were false. But it was, I don't know, it was amazing because they'd reveal it at the end and then they would say, oh, yes, this story is true because it appeared in a Chicago newspaper in 1949. Um, as if, like, as if that was enough to, like, to verify the story. True. That's pretty cute. <laughs> So if a newspaper article isn't enough, what do we look for? Well, we'd probably start by looking through the state government records. Say if it's a crime, we'd look for criminal records or police records or court records. Yeah, like a coroner's report, for example, if it's a body. an inquest. That would pretty much show you that something did happen. Yeah, or even if you can't get that evidence, we'll try and find, say, like a couple of newspaper articles or like more than one document before yeah. we can be satisfied. And then you measure it on balance and say, look, we think this happened. We're going to make a call here. You definitely have to be a detective when it yeah. comes to this kind of stuff. And that's what's thrilling about it. <laughs> or painful, depending on how you look at it. Exactly. Well, as ghost seekers will have you believe, the spirit of Federici continues to haunt the Princess Theatre. Even today, management maintains the theatre tradition of reserving a special seat for Federici on the opening night of each performance. He's a friendly ghost, though. It appears he just can't handle the final curtain call. Ooh! Ooh. Good history punning there, Lee. (laughs) Okay, so I have a confession to make. The first time I heard this story about the the Princess Theatre ghost, it was from my nan, and... She claims that she actually saw this ghost floating up the aisle when she was visiting as a nurse. So a couple of her and her nurse buddies went there to a performance. And I don't know when this was, maybe in the the 50s or the 60s, maybe a bit later. And uh, she was there and apparently Bert Newton, (laughs) which for those of you who don't know him, he's like a local TV celebrity. (laughs) And uh, my grandma said that he was playing there as a disc jockey she said um, and he came up to her later and said do you believe in the ghosts uh, and then she said well yes I've seen him and he said I have too and you're one of the only people here who believes me so 
Oh, you're Nan and Bert. Yeah, Nan and Bert. Keeping secrets together throughout the years. Yeah, so I did find out that the bit about Bert Newton um, claiming to have seen the ghosts and believe in the ghosts. Well, that's that's actually true. Um, was cor- that in a newspaper? That was in a newspaper. <laughs> uh, but it, it was in a newspaper, an online article by the City of Melbourne, uh, who are actually our sponsors, uh, who ran a story on this legend uh, late last year. So, you know, it's got to be true. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be true. Yeah. And as to the actual events... Well, there's also numerous newspaper reports and official records confirming that Federici did indeed die on stage of a heart attack in this thoroughly dramatic way all those years ago. So myth confirmed? Yeah, I'd say so. Plausible, maybe. Well, I mean, he definitely died. So, you know, to have a ghost story, you do need to have a a record of a death, right? Yeah, that's right. That's like the first step into a ghost story? Yeah. And that kind of leads us into our next story, really. Yeah. So Federici, he wasn't the only ghostly actor in this city to linger beyond their time. Dead and Buried set out to investigate the legend of Connie War, a tale little known beyond the barflies and tourists who frequent one of Melbourne's oldest pubs, the Mitre Tavern. To find out more, I went straight to the source and pulled up a stool with the one person who perhaps knows the legend best of all. My name is Alex Gray. I'm assistant manager at the Minor Tavern. I've been here for about eight years now, so I love working here and it's a great place to work. And obviously through the years, the story gets told many times and um, I've told it many times myself. Basically it's about uh, a lady called Connie Wall, um, who apparently was a, the mistress of Sir Rupert Clark, I believe it was. Um, and... The way I've heard the story is that he came down to Australia or down to Melbourne, sorry, and um, he met up with Connie, who was a mistress at the Mitre Tavern, and she fell in love with him. But unfortunately, he had a family back up north, and whenever he returned to his family after a period of time, Connie became heartbroken and believed she couldn't live without him. So she decided to end her life and hang herself at the Mitre Tavern. Um, I've heard a few people, through, obviously through the years, maybe before my time. Um, um, they used to count all the money upstairs before it became a steakhouse. And one of the ladies, um, she was counting the money and she believed what she seen was a ghostly figure uh, coming down the stairs from the restrooms upstairs. Myself, it's, a, it's an old building. It may, every old building makes many old noises. Even the wind can make noises, and there has been sometimes. Um, I, I can't deny it. Whenever I'm up, I do stock take by myself upstairs, sometimes, and sometimes you hear like footsteps on the stairs, and then you look out and you, there's nobody there. And like, oh, I wonder what that was. But yeah, it's, as I say, it's, it's an old building. I would love to believe it. Um, I love to believe there's something else out there, and yeah, maybe Connie is still floating around. Hopefully, anyway. We brought in actor and former bartender McGregor Rose to tell the real story behind the legend of fellow stage performer Connie War, all based on facts unearthed through hours upon hours of plain old historical research. At the lower end of Melbourne City, just off Little Collins Street, lies a small oasis of heritage buildings. 
fact, amongst the skyscrapers, this cluster of buildings was named after the huge number of banks that were built in the surrounding area. Quite literally, it's called Bank Place. Perhaps best known of all Bank Place landmarks is the Mitre Tavern. Built in 1868, this pub was for a long time a popular hangout for Melbourne's artists and the cultural elite, although nowadays it mostly attracts the after-five white-collar crowd. The tavern is known for its somewhat quirky, medieval-looking interior, which came about from a refit in the 1920s. It's also known for its resident ghost. According to local legend, the Mitre Tavern is haunted by a female presence, a ghost that lingers in a long white dress. It's said to be the ghost of Connie Waugh, mistress of wealthy entrepreneur Sir Rupert Turner Clark. Opposite the tavern, we have 12 to 16 Bank Place, which was built in 1884 by Rupert Clark's father, Sir William Clark. Next door to it sits the building currently occupied by Melbourne Savage Club. Melbourne's had its fair share of private clubs over the years, but the Savage Club is one of its few remaining men's-only clubs. Members are traditionally big cheeses, or savages, in the arts, business and politics. Rupert Clark, who was also a Savage Club honcho, bought and moved into the building in 1910. The Savage Club then bought it off him in 1923. Apparently, you are most likely to find Connie War's ghost on the balcony of the Mitre Tavern, drifting towards the club building in search of her past love. So the Clarks, a family who were once so wealthy and influential that they were practically a household name, are really central to this story. Papa Clark, first name William, had been made a baronet by Queen Victoria. Evidently, he was a huge fan of the name Rupert. It was the name of his first son and heir, and of the family mansion, Rupertswood, that he built in the suburb of Sunbury and which still stands today. Have you, have you seen it at all? Yeah, we drove past there. Well, we went to visit, but it's a private school now, so you can't go in. Is it pretty, like, big and lush, though? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's in the middle of nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it has a really cool um, gatehouse, so if you're driving through Sunbury, there's a beautiful big gatehouse out the front and then you follow the big drive down to the house, and it's pretty gorgeous. You can look at it from the outside. You might even be able to do a tour, I don't know. Cool. But it's pretty. We'll put a photo up um, on the website so everyone can take a look if they're interested. It's through the son, Rupert Clark, that we first come across Connie, though her main entrance into the public records come via an ending of sorts. And that ending is the divorce of Rupert from Amy Mary Clark, his wife of over 20 years. Amy was from another heavyweight clan, the Cumming family, who owned large tracts of pastoral land in the Western District of Victoria. And now, back to McGregor. High society divorce was big news in Melbourne. On the 19th of August 1909, Amy Clark faced a packed out courtroom to give evidence for her petition. Because of course at that time, to get a divorce, you had to prove that the other person was at fault in the marriage. And as the law stood, there was a limited list of things you could do that counted as being at fault. Like, for example, deserting your partner for a really long time, or adultery. Wrapped in a grey fur, Lady Clark described to the court how since their marriage, she and Rupert had lived in relative harmony together, going between their houses in Australia and England. That was until 1902, when Rupert was on a visit to London, where the couple's daughters were being educated. Says Amy... I could not say exactly why, but when he arrived in England, he was very cold in his manner, 
and very different from what he used to be. He did not seem to like me anymore. Clark didn't stay with his wife on this trip and relations between the couple for the next seven years continued to fester. Then in May or June in 1907, Amy heard rumours that the theatre actress Connie Waugh had been spotted by her husband's side at the horse races in theatres and in cafes around Melbourne. He had bought a house for her in the seaside suburb of St Kilda and she was there in London at that very moment, hanging out with Rupert at his expense. Little wonder then that Amy soon had it out with him and threatened divorce. When he complained that she was spending too much money, she called him out on the wads of cash he'd heaped on Connie. Less than two years later, back in Melbourne for her daughter's wedding, Amy kept her word and filed for divorce. Clark offered no defence and neither he nor Connie even showed up to court. Other evidence of their affair was presented. That Rupert had hired a room for liaisons back in 1902 and that he had bought Connie her place in the Melbourne suburb of St Kilda, which was named Rochester. And yes, it really was called that. And there were notes organising meetups. Dear heart, I think I will go to Sydney for a few days. I will leave next mailboat. Be at your rooms 4.40 tomorrow. I want some money. Connie. So what exactly do we know about Connie? Just who was she and where was she from? Well, we can't find much about Connie's early years. We know that she was born in 1879 as Alice Constance War Adams in the town of Balnarring in Victoria. Connie War was her stage name and we're told that she was an excellent horsewoman and one of the few ladies to own a driver's licence at the time. So Connie was obviously no shrinking violet, but as to what performances she starred in? Well, unfortunately, we couldn't find any records relating to this, so that part remains a mystery. In terms of how they met, well, Rupert Clark was a financial backer and patron of the theatre in the early 1900s. He was a partner in the lease of the Theatre Royal in Melbourne, which put on a mix of popular light opera, comedy and drama. So at a guess, it was the theatre scene where Rupert and Connie first crossed paths. But how did the affair wash with the press and with public opinion? Clark was a member of the Victorian Upper House of Parliament and the divorce was a blow to his political career. The press also mocked him for mixing with theatre folk, a crowd they thought beneath the prestige of a baronet. However, the way they treated Connie, with a mix of fascination but mostly derision, is truly something else. She is a very showy dresser and wears the loudest frocks, said the Truth newspaper. From lady journalist Fanella, Connie is a girl who has a way with her and not at all the naughty person Melbourne is shuddering over. And finally, the sun. While she is described as being bright and clever and auburn-haired like a titan woman, the face isn't as beautiful as the hair. A little over 18 months later, Rupert and Connie boarded the RMS Otway docked in Melbourne, headed on a luxury holiday. They were to travel to Egypt, Portugal, Spain, and finish the trip in London. Wrote Truth newspaper, The pair had tied the knot on the 6th of December 1910, and Rupert was now taking Connie away on their honeymoon. Their departure is indeed there on the official shipping record, listed as Sir Rupert Clark and Lady Clark. By this time, Clark was 45, and Connie was 31 years old. As the ship disembarked, 
Connie and Rupert talked quietly amongst themselves. Rupert waved goodbye to a friend on the dock. However, the biggest field day for the press was to come in October later that year. A lawsuit claiming damages of £1,000, or roughly 200000 Australian dollars in today's terms, had been filed against Connie in the Melbourne Supreme Court. Lodged by Ethel Byrne, Ethel alleged that Connie had violently assaulted her in July that year. In Ethel's lawsuit, she claimed that her face had been bruised from the incident. She had suffered serious pain from the beating. She'd sustained severe nervous shock and she'd incurred numerous medical expenses as a result of her injuries. Certain items of her clothing were damaged. She even had to take a sea trip to recover her health. That's right, a medical holiday. Also being sued by Ethel for his involvement in the alleged incident was George Gordon Cumming. Cumming, right? Seem familiar? Well, that's because after a little digging, Dead and Buried discovered that George Cumming was the cousin of Rupert Clark's first wife, Amy, which is pretty weird. Ethel claimed that Cumming had pinned her down, holding her hands to stop her defending herself, while Connie kicked, punched and even strangled her. This all apparently took place in Cummings' room in his home. So this all looks like pretty bad PR for Connie. But the real sting arises from the initial court sitting. Because it's at this point the judge asks the court, What is the lady actually known as? Said Ethel's lawyer. As Connie War. But she's also known as Lady Rupert Clark. Not Lady Clark but also known as Lady Clark. So her story about being married to Clark is a lie. She was merely passing herself off as Clark's wife, but the legal wedding never took place. Naturally, the press lap it up. There's complications and delays with court processes. And then on Boxing Day, Connie cleared off on the steamship Niagara, bound for America. According to Connie's lawyer, she hadn't left to escape giving evidence, as might appear but on the advice of her doctor, who had recommended a change of environment to restore her now-failing health. Another one of those medical holidays. But then, come February 1915, the case was suddenly settled out of court. We can't know the exact terms of the settlement, who paid what and how much, but newspapers do report that Connie had struck a deal with Rupert. He would transfer a bunch of money and some property, and in return, she would leave Victoria. Their relationship was over. Of course, we'll never really know for sure exactly why it ended. But looking at newspapers, which printed the letter written by Ethel's lawyer to Connie, provided some pretty good clues early on in the search. Number one, the letter talks about how the assault is particularly aggravating for Ethel, and I quote, in consequence of the circumstances under which Mrs Cumming was found in your room. Well, who was Mrs Cumming? That's actually Ethel. And that's also the second part of the clue. Because just like Connie Waugh was otherwise called Lady Clark, Ethel Byrne was also known as Mrs Cumming. Meaning she was also his wife, but just not according to the law. So seeing this, I dug up the court records. Because Connie never answered the questions put to her by Ethel's lawyer, there's no version of her events on file. But we do have the response by the third person in this incident... George Cumming. Here's what George had to say about the confrontation. 
far as he knew, what provoked it all was that Ethel and Connie were in the room together when Ethel said something to Connie about finding Connie and George in bed together. Connie then threw wine in Ethel's face, which provoked Ethel to attack Connie. At this point, George then came in and found the pair in struggle, pulling at each other's hair and at their coats. He claims that he only tried to use reasonable force to separate them. He never held Ethel down to allow Connie to assault her. Newspaper reports also say that the women had been arguing two days earlier and that apparently that morning Ethel had rocked up at George's house, began screaming at Connie and chucked a flower pot through the window. Naturally, it was Connie, the cheating wannabe wife who was harpooned in the press. Little mention of George Cummings' part in all of it. Evidently, this disdain by the media lasted years. Even in 1939, over 20 years later, the South Australian press reflected on the incident and gleefully reminded their readers that the assault case had proved that Connie's honeymoon aboard the RMS Otway was all but a farce. It reported, Connie arrived on board in a bridal gown complete with a virginal veil and whatnots. The ship was simply deluged with flowers and the telegrams overflowed the notice board like the Murray in flood. No wonder. The clever lady had arranged them all herself. Also on the file was a subpoena that would have forced Clark to give evidence in court, air his dirty laundry. Another possible incentive to settle the court case behind closed doors and end it all between him and Connie. After serving in the war, Rupert, now approaching old age, married 22-year-old Elsie Florence Tucker in 1918. Less than eight years later, he died in a villa in Monte Carlo on Christmas Day 1926. That's all Dead and Buried could find out about Clark and Connie's affair. So how does this line up with our ghost story? Last we heard of Connie is that she was in America, and again, we have shipping records of this. But we can still surmise that at some later stage, she came back to Melbourne from overseas, couldn't get over her heartbreak, and took her life in or around the Mitre Tavern. Except there's a major hole in this theory. There's no evidence of a suicide. Every time there was a suspicious or unnatural death in Victoria, there was a coroner's inquiry. And there's no record of a Connie War or an Amy Constance War Adams or of any young woman who even remotely matches her details committing suicide there. But interestingly, there are records of other suicides in the vicinity of Bank Place. A tragic murder-suicide. In this case, a coroner's report concluded that Albert Greenwood had poisoned his girlfriend and then taken his own life in the Whitehall Apartments, located in Bank Place. Ominously, Greenwood had told a waiter in conversation a few days before the couple's deaths that the waiter would not be seeing them again. They were going, said Greenwood, on a long journey. This was in December 1915, less than a year after Connie's assault case ended. And then another name came up connected with a suicide from years earlier in 1901. A Cumming. Thomas Cumming. Yet another cousin of the First Lady Clark. His death is described in the Argus newspaper. Mr Thomas Cumming, a member of the well-known family of Western District pastoralists, committed suicide yesterday by shooting himself in the head with a revolver. The act appears to have been committed on the impulse of the moment, and the news of his death came as a terrible shock to his relatives. He was known to be suffering from acute insomnia and showed every sign of depression and worry. Thomas Cumming had spent the morning 
in another of Melbourne's gentlemen's clubs, the Australia Club. At 11 o'clock, he came to Bank Place Chambers where his brother worked as a lawyer. The brother left Thomas and went down to his office. On hearing a gunshot, he ran upstairs to find his brother lying on his back with a bullet wound through his forehead, a Smith & Wesson revolver by his side. So here's my theory. We have a bunch of related pieces of information. First, we have at least two suicides in Bank Place around the same period. Second, there's the fact of the strong connection of prominent families like the Cumming and the Clark dynasties to the area. And third, and perhaps most significantly, is this incredible scorn directed at Connie Waugh, most notably by the media. Take these elements and add the time factor of about 100 years. Think about who is more likely to be remembered and what things they are likely to be remembered for in the wash of history. Looking at this story, I found records of a racehorse that won quite a few times named Connie Waugh. No doubt the horse would have been named around the time Connie was big news in Melbourne. The horse has disappeared from our social memory. But Rupert? Well, he still has an entire horse race named after him, the Sir Rupert Clark Stakes. Take Connie's reputation, her standing as an actress from seemingly humble beginnings, and her gender against the social, cultural and political clout of Melbourne's upper crust, the Cummings and the Clarks. Who do you think, over time, as information is lost and repurposed, is more likely to be tarnished with the stigma of suicide? Well, I think the answer to that's pretty obvious. But if she didn't really kill herself, do we know how she actually died? Well, no. So I confess, I can't find the death record for Connie Waugh. But she does pop up again in the press in July 1915, rumoured to be living in Honolulu as the mistress of a Mr Waugh, We're told that war is a wealthy German plantation owner. And remember, at this time, Australia was still in the thick of the First World War. Much later, in 1947, Connie suddenly comes up again. She's described as a titled lady, and we hear that she was attending an elite function at Marble Hill, the governor's residence in South Australia. So perhaps she moved into state and teed up with another well-off bloke. In the same article, the paper says that later on she's seriously snubbed by this rich guy in the Adelaide clique who basically turns her out from his home when he recognises her from his youth, which he spent in Melbourne. If I was in Connie's position, I might also be pretty tempted to take on a new identity, which is probably why from this point on she's pretty much untraceable. So you've now heard the truth as best we can offer it the paper trail behind a tabloid-worthy tale in the world of the rich and famous. But does this mean we can definitely rule out the possibility that the Mitre Tavern is haunted? No body, no ghost? Usually, most of the time, there has to be a death for some kind of ghost to, to come out of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, obviously it's sad to eradicate a ghost by looking at the paper trail, but, I mean, we know that she didn't die there, so it kind of stands to reason that she's not haunting the place. Yeah, it's definitely not her ghost anyway. Yeah, so myth busted on that one. Yeah. But we can't really say whether someone else died and their little ghosty is cruising up and down the stairs. Yeah, that's right. And when I went to the Mitre Tavern, that's one of the stories that came out, that there had been other ghost hunters there and they had detected other beings. But, well, we do have a little bit more information anyway. Yes, here's uh, McGregor with the last chapter and the final word on the subject. 
for this episode at least. As you can expect, over the years the running of the Mitre Tavern has changed hands quite a few times. On one such occasion in 1902, a publican's licence was granted to Nora Flannery. Nora lived and worked in the tavern for 12 years. This was right until her death in March 1914. Nora, it's reported, died at her place of residency, at the tavern. So, how about our ghost then? A woman scorned by love? Or simply a barmaid anxious to keep on serving a few pints? So that's the end of episode five. But if you're hungry for more mystery and Australian stories, I'd recommend another great podcast called All the Best. In particular, the episode titled The Chimeras of Regional Victoria. It features our very own Dr David Waldron, our regional folklore expert, who appeared in our Halloween special. Next episode, we swap pub ghosts for the Holy Spirit. Have you ever seen those faith healer guys preaching on early morning TV? Well, we're going to profile the world's first celebrity preacher who spent many of his early years in Melbourne, where he was constantly entangled in controversy. It's definitely one not to miss. You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories and sign up to our mailing list for new story details. We'd love to hear your Melbourne history stories too, so drop us an email. And if you enjoyed the podcast, let everyone know with an iTunes review. Dead and Buried Podcasts is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. Get in touch and we'll help you find what you're looking for.